Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. The CEO of Mar, Jim Seckman, has over 30 years' experience as a counselor. In this episode, we talk about how Mar takes careful effort to cultivate an atmosphere where clients and their families feel safe to express their deepest vulnerabilities and to heal. Maintaining this type of environment requires constant attention and a commitment to the principles behind the 12 steps. This commitment pervades the whole culture of MAR, extending across the different roles, from counseling staff to clients, from addict to non-addict, from the person in treatment to their family members, from administrators to volunteers. Jim discusses how at MAR, everyone is offered the opportunity to participate in their own recovery and contribute to the recovery of others. He talks about the abundant life that MAR has pursued for over 40 years and continues to try and make available for everyone who comes in contact with the organization, no matter what part they play in the community. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, so if you, would you mind starting out with what you say anytime a new person comes into group supervision? Oh, sure. Um, gosh, I have to think about that for a second. Um, yeah. I think that, that provides a good insight into... I think not only how you you do supervision and counseling, mm-hmm. but kind of the spirit of of what we do here at Mar. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, said, "Understanding others is wisdom. Understanding oneself is enlightenment." And I think that uh, in clinical supervision, one of the things that we strive for is to understand what the clients are trying to go through. But the best way to, to do that is to understand oneself. Because in understanding ourselves, we can then have a clearer picture of what's going on with them. And uh, we don't often want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, that's it's like sometimes it's okay. To, oh, yeah, I can hear your anxiety and hear your um, uh, hear your pain, but uh, you know, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to get in touch with mine, but it's only through getting in touch with our own pain and getting in touch with our anxiety that we're going to be able to understand others. Ernie Kurtz in the uh, book Spirituality of Imperfection discusses this, how it is these very imperfections in ourselves, if we're able to recognize them and accept them, that help us understand and accept other people's imperfections and uh, what they go through as well. So uh, that's what you know we strive for in the supervisory process is to uh, understand that about ourselves so that we can then connect up with other people. Yeah, and it, it, as you were talking, it reminded me a lot of what um, when I talked to the staff here and um, how they – talk about doing with each other how work treatment works best when they're doing with each other as a staff what mm-hmm. they're asking in terms of therapeutic oh, community yeah. and being vulnerable and talking you know setting boundaries and all, all mm-hmm. the things they're asking clients to do works better when they're doing it as mm-hmm. a staff absolutely absolutely yeah they uh you know, and you can watch that happen, you know, when they have their own staffings and when they have, you know, when they're trying to talk and process and, and think about uh, uh, interventions with, with clients and, and look at how we need to work with them. You can watch that therapeutic community form and, uh, uh, you know, really work with that because uh, that's one of the things I really do love about working at MAR is that there is that community uh, with the staff as well. Uh, as you said, we do try to do the same thing we tell the clients to do. And uh, because of that, I think we have a much richer environment and we're more open with each other. And because we're open with each other, the clients feel safe to be open with us. Mm-hmm. So, and, and is that, you've had a, a long career in lots of different areas <laughs> not too long though 30 years it, yeah yeah 30 years mm-hmm. uh, clinical chaplain um i've been a clinical chaplain i've been a primary counselor i've been a, a addiction coordinator uh coordinator for ser- addiction services at emory university hospital um and uh clinical director and now ceo yeah so i've i've done 
most of the positions that are in treatment facilities and have worked at uh, inpatient, outpatient, detox, um, you know, co-ed, men's center, women's center. You know, I've worked with every popul- almost every population and um, quite a few uh, in quite a few different uh, settings. The reason I brought up your long career, I was going to ask, is that is the the sense of community that you see here at Mar and that you participated in and now are kind of overseeing as a CEO? Is that something pretty unique? You'd say. I, I think that it really is. Yes, I, and um, and I'm speaking specifically about the staff. Right. Right. Yes, I, it really is. Uh, especially the way the treatment field is today. Uh, today we see this polarization in the treatment field uh, between kind of the medical model and sober living, and Mar sits right in the middle with our residential therapeutic community model, um, where we have many of the elements of the uh, medical model and many elements of the sober living model, the recovery residence model. And we sit right there in the middle. And so MAR really is unique in that sense. There are other facilities that are similar. And and I've been extremely fortunate in my career to work at many uh, places that uh, are therapeutic community um, based. Uh, Some have not been though, and and they're much tougher to work at. But uh, MAR has been more deliberate, I, I will say Mar has been more deliberate about it than anybody else, mm-hmm. any place I've ever worked. I mean, it is something that is constantly put at the forefront, uh, that is constantly discussed, constantly honored as the primary, you know, source of healing and, and the, the main way we do treatment. And so uh, it's not just something that's a concept here, it's something that is actually done. It's lived. It's lived by the staff who then um, help the clients to live it. And it's so it's so critical. I mean, as I've been listening to all the podcasts um, <laughs> and hear these stories, but you know, I've heard these stories for years about how people who come from these family systems and, and uh, other systems where there just is not community, where people only use you for what they want, uh, and and vice versa, the clients have used other people for what they want as well. And so that uh, they come into a place where there's community, where there's that accountability to each other. And uh, there's that responsibility and that sense of belonging. I, I just, I cannot stress strongly enough how important that is uh, because, let, let's face it, most of the people who turn to drugs, who turn to alcohol, who turns to some addictive process are seeking a belonging uh, most of the time. And they find it, honestly, for a little while. Then all of a sudden it turns on them and uh, becomes their worst enemy. But uh, so to come into MAR, to come into uh, this community model, this therapeutic community, and get that sense of belonging it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'll, I'll never forget the first time I walked into a 12-step meeting and felt that sense of acceptance. And it's like these people don't know who I am, and but I felt accepted simply because I walked in. Now, that you, you just can't beat that. that. That's the greatest thing on earth to me. Um, and you just don't find that many places in our world. Um, and, and so that is such a wonderful thing. And because of the damage, I think, that has been done to us by addiction, that that's hard to accept. Uh, for, it's hard to take in. It's hard to uh, allow that because we don't recognize it. You know, I mean, it, it's like, all right, what are you after? What are the conditions here? You know, just tell me what the rules are. It, but uh I think that's really what is the power of the difference at Mar is that level of acceptance, is that belonging. We're not just trying to treat your disease. We're, we accept you for who you are. And uh, if you're willing, you belong here. And that's, like I said, I, 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 that's just the greatest thing in the world to me. Uh, that's wonderful. You're you're so right, and we just when we were interviewing Stacy and Terry yesterday, mm. they're so 
eloquent about speaking about that. Mm -hmm. Just Terry, you know, not as someone who's ever struggled with substance abuse issues, but said he just felt safe here. Yeah. Yeah. Just, he just felt safe here. And, and that there's this, this trust of, um, and yeah. that that sense of belonging too that what you're going to be honest about isn't going to get you rejected or kicked out the door right. that that takes so i mean it's like that's something very what it's occurring to me as we're talking about it, it's something that requires that sense of community that that's very accepting requires cultivation and attention and you know monitoring it's not mm-hmm. just a set of rules that get handed down and just okay if everybody follows these rules and it requires kind of this tending, you know, yeah. like both yeah. on the, for the staff and then for the clients, it, yeah. it's a very delicate thing. It strikes me as. A, it, it really is. It, 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 you know, it's interesting. Uh, well, first of all, let me back up for just a second because you mentioned safety. You know, uh, I've always said that the three most important things in real estate you hear are location, location, location. Well, the three most important things in treatment, safety, 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 because most people come to treatment and they do not feel safe in the world. Uh, and the world's not a safe place necessarily. And um, many, for many people, uh, where we should have felt safe in our families was one of the places we did not feel safe. And so um, it's difficult to believe that there is a safe place. And, and so uh, that, that you're right, absolutely right, and Terry's absolutely right. That, that is one of the greatest things uh, that, uh, that we can do. You know, you talked about cultivation. It's really funny. In order to die, all you have to do is nothing. Um, in order to live, there's a lot of things you have to do. You know, isn't that, isn't that crazy? To be in poor health, just do nothing. To be in good health, there's all kinds of things you got to do. Uh, I don't know why, you know, the world is that way, but it is. And so in order to maintain this community, I mean, you're absolutely right. We have to, it takes constant attention. It takes constant care. There, There is that very hard work of of the constant attention of looking after and, and, um, you know, taking care of all the little things that, that come in and, and, and the, the disease, the very powerful disease of addiction that wants to destroy it. Uh, you have to always be on guard, uh, like that. So I've never really thought about it this way, but in some ways I think staff act as a shepherd to the therapeutic community to and and uh, while participating very uh, very closely with it, um, we take care of it and watch over it, and that requires you know that that uh, awareness at all times of what's going on and and uh, that's one of the things I appreciate about Mar. We don't just kind of wind it up and let it go, you know. We are we are looking after it very carefully. We are, con- every day, we are checking in. Every day we are having groups. Every day we are talking. Every day we are, you know, helping our clients look at what they need to do to heal. This is wonderful stuff. That's evidenced by the staffing. When I when I sat in on the, like, staff meetings at mm-hmm. the men's center or the women's center, like I know yesterday they had one that went for like two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, they'll do that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because it's like, wait, have you talked to this? Have you talked to so-and-so about this issue? Well, I'm going to have a group with him first. So maybe I'll talk, but I'll, I'll call you on your cell phone and let you know whether I've talked. Yeah. Because he's going back home to see his family this weekend. So we should address that. But And just very knowledgeable about all the factors that are going on, but also careful not to just jump in and rescue or save mm-hmm. and, you know, control the situation. But but being there for support as as needed, it, it takes a lot of conversation and oh, yeah. careful careful looking at the community and what are the different dynamics, what are different personalities at play. Mm-hmm. Um, and coordination of the entire staff. You know, this disease is stronger than any one of us. And uh, so, you know, a, a single staff person simply isn't enough. That's why we have to have a team. That's why we have to have coordination with the team. Uh, and so, yeah, what you're describing, I, I love it because we're all aware that we alone cannot fight this. It's too powerful. But together, 
we can. You know, and the program tells us that as well. It, it kind of also reminds me of the thing that you say sometimes about, maybe you could say it here because you say it better than I can, of you've, you've had a lot of different groups in your career that you've Oh, yeah. Could, but I've never you, had a group out of control. Right. Yeah. 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 How, how does that go again? Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm always struck by how uh, young counselors who are getting into this field are so terrified of doing group. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, why are you, why are you scared? Well, it, it finally, it really boils down to, I'm scared the group will get out of control mm-hmm. and I won't know what to do. And uh, so my comment then is, let's see, I've had I've had people pass out in group. I've had people throw up in group. I've had people fall asleep in group. I've had people get in fights in group. I've had people leave group. I've had people decompensate in group. I've had people regress in group. But I've never had a group out of control. And so I'm not even sure what it would look like, quite honestly. And um, we that's, well, I mean, as staff, that's how we learn to handle things. And uh, honestly, that's one of the reasons I love this field is because you do get to see everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've never had a group out of control and I'm not even sure what it, what that would mean. And honestly, the, the young counselor isn't really not sure either. They're just scared. That's all. And I understand that they have anxiety about walking into a room where they don't really know exactly what they're doing. But I, I try to assure them that nothing in group ever happens by mistake. Um, it, group is the you know, not only is therapeutic community the most powerful uh, treatment model, I believe, for addiction, but I think group is the uh, most powerful intervention. Uh, one-to-one therapy is great and uh, works very well, but group is where it all really happens. You know, that's the exciting part of everything. So what gives you that confidence? Because that sounds great, but <laughs> I imagine... For those young younger counselors, uh-huh. that's harder. It's hard to get a grasp. How? What do you mean? How? How could if this thing that seems like it's going terribly wrong? How could that be yeah. part of? Well, first of all, what you just said—it's going terribly wrong—is a judgment uh, based on our anxiety that. Uh, may or may not be true. It may actually be going terribly right. Um, And what you may be looking at is a reenactment of a family argument or something that happens within the family. And if you are able to back up enough and not let your anxiety, you know, as a matter of fact, most of what you feel is what they're feeling anyway. If you're feeling anxious, they're feeling anxious as well. And uh, so if you can observe that process and just be able to look at that and say, what is going on here? What is happening here? Well, it's not going terribly wrong. Like I said, it may be exactly the right thing. And so when we're able to back up and look at it, we can say, you know, is this something that's familiar to you? Is this some, what's happening right now? Is that what used to happen in your family? And it's been 100% of the time, it's been yes. They are reenacting what has happened to them before. Well, then we get a chance to examine it and look at it more carefully. That concept of, of uh, nothing ever happens by mistake in group, I, I do have to give credit to a mentor who taught me that. Uh, was a When I was doing my chaplain internship uh, at the state mental hospital in Kentucky, uh, the head chaplain there, Clarence Barton, did group therapy with decompensated schizophrenics. Now you talk about odd things happening in group. He had everything, but it was one of the most brilliant things I ever had. And he was the one who said, um, when I, when I kind of questioned as a very young intern, when I kind of questioned, well, wait a minute, that's just the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, he would say, no behavior is without reason. Every behavior has a reason behind it. Nothing is by mistake. And so once I began to take that in and look at that, and as I sat with these decompensated schizophrenics and talked with them, I began to understand what he was talking about and realize that they really were making sense in their own way. And so when we talk about group and group, quote unquote, you know, the out of control or, you know, if my anxiety is coming up, uh, what I'm looking at is something that is, is happening the way it's supposed to. I just need to be able to understand uh, what what's happening. Why is what's happening happening now? And be able to then 
bring that to the attention of the group and say, can we try it differently? Can we try something different? Rather than you two arguing and yelling at one another, what is it that you're really wanting to say? What is it that you need from each other? And let's try it that way and see what happens. And it occurs to me to do that, you need time. Mm -hmm. Like you can't be, we got to get this person fixed and out the door. Oh, right. Yeah. That kind of doesn't happen in 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, no, we're going to do this and this and this, and then you'll be fine. No, it, it's not like, uh, uh, you know, treating a broken arm. It's not like treating, you know, uh, some medical condition where there's a prescribed set of here's what you do and that's that's what you do and you'll be fine. No, absolutely not. There has to be a long period of time in order for the healing to take place. I mean, the brain which is severely damaged uh, in the addictive process takes time to heal for one and and for two all these patterns that we grew up with those aren't going to go away in just a few weeks i mean we we as human beings it takes us time to be able to recognize what's happening and sometimes we need help with that that's where staff is extremely important uh, staff are able to point out did you see what you just did you know, and so we, the awareness of it and then being able to practice something new, something different, uh, go back into the community, you know, and say, all right, well, I'm going to try this differently, you know, and then begin to learn new behavior. Um, you know, for some of our folks, this is not about rehabilitation. This is habilitation. A lot of our folks have never had a healthy system. And then all of a sudden they started drinking and they become they became unhealthy. No, uh, many of the people we see, particularly nowadays, they are coming out of very unhealthy systems. They have never seen a healthy system, and so we become that role model. The community becomes the model for them to try new behaviors and um, learn how to live a new life. I mean, it's just incredible how that works, and. You know, it, it's really funny. I guess if you had to write it down, I suppose we could, you know, but it's it's really hard to tell sometimes how that occurs, how that switch occurs. and it, and But over the course of months, it will begin to happen and, and people will begin to change. And you watch that process as the brain begins to heal from the, the destruction of the addiction. And as they begin to learn new patterns of behavior, uh, their lives really start to take shape. There's not just this, we're going to just push through and right. and right. break through and until they're finally vulnerable and broken down or whatever. Right. It, it takes a lot of consideration and taking mm -hmm. each person into account with their unique history yeah. and family dynamics and all yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're not changing light bulbs here. You know, I mean, it, it's not, oh, that's broken, so let's just, you know, fix, you know, just replace it with a good behavior. No, it, it's something that you have to understand what's happening here what, what's going on why is this broken the way it is and then then let's look at healing rather than replacing um and so it, it does take a lot of care and concern and that's one of the things i love about mar is that all the staff really do care about what's going on with the clients um, they really do are concerned about their well-being and um you know care about uh what they've been through and where they're going. Can you say more about what's going on with the brain? Um, well, while addiction, uh, what, let's just break it down to simple. Using drugs uh, and alcohol uh, on its simplest terms, while every organ in the body is affected and the, the entire brain ultimately gets affected, there's two primary areas in the brain that are radically affected by drug use, particularly initially. Uh, the first is the limbic system, which is down in the midbrain, buried really deep in the brain. And what happens when we uh, when we use, there becomes a, uh, a a rise in the dopamine levels, and we get this shot of dopamine that hits our limbic system. And some drugs that that spike it takes longer. You know, it, it's a it's a longer. Um, spike and some are, it shoots up really quickly like with stimulants like methamphetamine and, and cocaine. Uh, but what happens then is from the limbic system up to the prefrontal cortex, uh, kind of our forehead right above our eyes, um, there's a channel called the dopamine channel. 
And um, the limbic system is concerned with our survival. Uh, it's concerned with what keeps us alive. And it's concerned with memory and those types of things. The prefrontal cortex is concerned with rational thinking, with making uh, decisions, with uh, thinking abstractly. So how it works normally is, uh, and always in the one-day seminar, I'll always ask if anyone's a grandparent in, in there, and how does it feel when you held your first grandbaby for the first time? And they'll say, oh my gosh, it felt so wonderful. And I'll say, Did, was it like when you held your first baby for the first time? And they'll say, absolutely. And they remember both very clearly. Well, that's how it's supposed to work because what that does is it gives us a good feeling. This is called the pleasure pathway as well. It gives us a good feeling to hold a baby. It's just wonderful. And that sends dopamine from the limbic system up to the prefrontal cortex and through this channel. And what happens then is it's kind of like the limbic system is saying to the prefrontal cortex, hey, this feels really good. We need to do this again. And the prefrontal cortex then can look at it irrationally and, and, and make judgments about it and say, yes, this really does feel good, and sends a message back down uh, to the limbic system that call, uh, through the glutamate channel, another neurotransmitter called glutamate, and uh, says, yes, let's do this again. Well, it also goes down through the memory structures of the brain. And so we remember this. So it feels good to nurture babies, which is the reason all of us are still here. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because we were all, you know, it feels good to hold a baby. And so we want to do it over and over. So we nurture the children and they grow up. Um, but, you know, another simple way to look at that is if I asked you to give me directions to your favorite restaurant, you immediately could do that. That's because... Uh, you're, you ate there, your limbic system enjoyed it. It was something that ensured your survival. This is good food. And we think about primitive human beings, they had to remember where the food source was. And so uh, we remember where this good food was and our, our prefrontal cortex agreed with that, said, yeah, it's good food, reasonable price. Uh, we'll have to come back here. And so uh, it sends a message back down. Yes, let's remember where this is and let's remember you know, that we need to come back here. So we go back and we tell other people when they ask us, where's a good place to eat? We tell them where to go, you know, Hey, over here, this restaurant anyway. Um, well, here's what happens with addiction. Here's the, here's part of the problem with it. Uh, if we think about a disease, uh, disease is really a very simple concept. A disease is when an organ or a system in the body gets a defect and then that causes symptoms. That's a disease. So when we think about addiction as a disease, what we're the organ, the primary organ we're looking at is the brain. So when I ingest drugs into my body, it causes a spike in dopamine in the limbic system, that survival mechanism, and shoots that spike of dopamine up through the dopamine channel. Unfortunately, it is so much dopamine, it's like pushing a bowling ball through a garden hose and it hits the prefrontal cortex like a bomb. And it's not just, hey, you know, this is really nice. We ought to think about doing this again. What do you think? It's we have to do this again. You have no choice. You have no choice. Sometimes that takes a little longer to build up than at other times, that damage. But it, it make no mistake, it is very real physical damage that happens inside the brain. That dopamine channel gets carved out. Uh, the prefrontal cortex is compromised. The blood flow in the prefrontal cortex is compromised. And the prefrontal cortex loses the ability to think rationally. And so it sends a message back down saying, yes, we have to do this again. Any alcoholic or addict or a person who is involved in an addictive process, if you ask them about the first time they used, they immediately remember and can tell you the story. That's because the dopamine spike ensured that they would remember, and it got locked into memory. And the problem with that is it's locked into memory in the limbic system, which is concerned with our survival. And so when a person begins to do things that to us seem crazy, you know, they're willing to give up their family, they're willing to give up their job, they're willing to give up everything, even their life, to drink, 
or use drugs, that's because the limbic system, that whole, well, that whole system, the pleasure pathway has been hijacked and the disease says, this is what you need for your survival. And this is all you need for your survival is this next drink, this next thing that you do. Um, and so it overwhelms survival even. And, um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, our, and the other thing I, I talk with, with families about is our best logic means nothing because the ability to think logically has been compromised. The blood flow in the prefrontal cortex has been just uh, radically affected and the person cannot think logically. And so we try to, you know, it's, it's so odd, we try to convince them with logic. You know, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Well, actually, no, they, they truly don't. And um, when they, when our, so our best logic means nothing to them. And um, a speaker we had at the banquet years ago, Clancy, said it the best, better than anybody I've ever heard. He said, we're not an alcoholic because we think alcohol is a problem. We're an alcoholic because we think it's the answer. And so the families look at it and it's a problem and they're right. It is a problem. Uh, they're 100% right, but the alcoholic or the addict thinks it's the answer to their life. And so they're coming at it from two completely different directions because the family member, their prefrontal cortex is working just fine. But the addict, their prefrontal cortex has been compromised, radically compromised and damaged. Um, and they're not thinking on the same level. And so it's approaching things from two different, you know, two completely different perspectives. Now, the good news is, is that the brain can heal unless there has been like really long-term damage uh, done to the person. But the brain does heal. But once again, we get back to it takes time. Uh, the brain, it's not like a cut on your arm, you know, that you put a little neosporin on it, you know, put a Band-Aid on it. It's fine in a week. That's not how this one works. Uh, the brain takes a lot longer to heal. And studies uh, have shown that we're looking at six months to a year before the brain really is able to bounce back and the blood flow returns to normal and uh, the person is able to think logically again. I, I, and it's interesting that uh, research had, new research has shown what the program has always said when it says no new relationships for a year. You know, well, it's because they've noticed that it takes about a year for the person to think to be able to think things through. And, uh, but there is actually research that is showing, uh, measuring blood flow in the prefrontal cortex that is actually showing why that is. And it's just uh, some really great stuff. Wow, that's such a great, um, yeah. It's so helpful to have that kind of physical understanding of, mm -hmm. oh, this is why the person, this is not, the, the person that I love so much is not acting like themselves because right. they're the rational part of their brain's been hijacked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and their survival, they think their survival is contingent on the drug. Whether they consciously realize that or not. Correct. Right. And so if it comes down to, and that's something else I've heard that um, when it comes down to a, a choice, like when push comes to shove, the person's always if they're in, if they're in an active addiction, they're always going to choose the substance. Always. So whether always. if job gets in the way of that, I'm going to choose the substance. Mm -hmm. If it, uh, children get in the way of that, going to choose the substance. Mm -hmm. If spouse. Yeah, and that's that is so hard for families. Uh, I grew up in an in an addicted home, and so I understand this. That question: Is this a choice? And it is, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, growing up in the family I did, you know, that question gnaws at you. Why is my mother choosing to be in her addiction rather than with us? Uh, so yes, it will take over everything and it doesn't matter who you are. It uh, will always preempt, I guess is the word, job, family, everything. Uh, and that's that's hard. It really is. I mean, I, I like I said, having grown up with that, and then uh, being with families who are going through just the agony of wondering, well, wait a minute, you're you're choosing this over me. You know that 
I, 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 that's very tough. That's very hard to come to terms with. But it really is what the disease does to a person. It really is. And, uh, you know, it's not like if, if we have some other type of disease like cancer, uh, you know, we physically can't get up and do something that we used to do. And people tend to understand, oh, yeah, well, you, you know, you're going through chemotherapy and you're very tired and you know, I get that. And so they have, a, but when things happen in the brain, it's not as obvious as that. And so when, as a family member, when we look at that, then their behavior hurts but it is a disease process, and I think the better we understand that, the better we are able to then work to live with that and to work, you know, do what we need to do for ourselves, work with the person and do what we need to do for ourselves. When you said that, uh, it's funny you quoted Clancy because <clears throat> I, would, I had just been thinking about him when you were talking about the rush of dopamine. Uh -huh. Because there's another thing that I've heard him say where he says, <clears throat> uh, like, alcoholics are the people for whom alcohol goes boom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And and if you don't know what that means, then you're probably not <laughs> you're an alcohol. Not alcohol. <laughs> but, but, when it, but when it clicks right. and it goes boom, and I think that's such a great image, like a bomb that going is. off. Yeah. And it, yeah. it just wreaks havoc in, yeah. in your brain and nothing's the same yeah. again. And it's also, you know, yeah, I love that. That's great because um, uh, every single person I've worked with, coming into treatment has had some version of when I took that first drink, when I took that first hit, when I did this for the first time, I felt, and then fill in the blank, for the first time in my life, I felt. And then, you know, everybody's blank is different that they fill in there. But uh, for the first time in my life, I felt wanted. I felt excited. I felt at peace. I felt whatever, you know, and it's true. It's true. For the first time in my life, I felt. And that is, that's the boom. So in the brain, what's happening when you're starting to talk about these things for the first time, feeling feelings that you have, what is, how is the brain healing during that process? Well, um, a lot, of, a lot of researchers have been looking at how the brain is uh, creating new neural pathways. And I know when I worked at Emory that they were doing some research on that, uh, how the brain uh, that has been, if certain neural pathways have been damaged, the brain will create new neural pathways. And, um, you know, so you literally are thinking differently. And also, we are giving the brain time for the blood flow to readjust, for the dopamine levels to readjust as well. Uh, that dopamine, uh, when it gets depleted, uh, we don't feel good. When, it's, when it shoots up, we feel, we feel great. You know, that's what dopamine does for us. And so the dopamine levels have to balance out. And I think that uh, being with people in treatment as those dopamine levels are, you know, the brain doesn't just adjust it to the proper level immediately. It kind of goes up and down. And so being with persons and being able to accommodate, not accommodate, but be with them during those spikes and valleys, peaks and valleys of the dopamine readjusting over time, and also waiting for that blood flow to um, get back to normal where they can think better and um, make decisions more rationally. And so, and then the, like I said, then the neural pathways beginning to readjust. It's just, you know, I, I think the most important thing is just being with them through, through the whole thing. Because if I'm, if I'm just kind of out there on my own and I get this drop in dopamine, well, my brain is immediately going to say, well, I know how to fix this. You know, I'll just go do this and my dopamine will go back up and I'll feel fine. So when we're sitting in group and when we're in treatment and the, the dopamine drops and you can say out loud, I just want to go use, I just want to go drink. And then the group and the, and the staff member can say, well, let's think about what we can do differently it, rather than go drink. And so I learn a new behavior rather than drinking to solve 
my feeling. I learn a different behavior. I learn to rely on the group. I learn to rely on the community. I learn to rely on uh, the program. I, I learn to rely on how to do things in a way that are maybe not instantaneous, but that work a lot better. And along, that's that's a great uh, way to set this up because I was just thinking about how it's really struck me over having so many conversations with people that have come through Mar, where uh, it it took, you know, like where they got it. Mm -hmm. um, they always, I don't know if it's a boom. I don't know if that's the right way to say. Maybe it is. I don't know, but like they have a moment where they were remember at Mar laughing for the first time yeah. or having fun at a Braves game or right. I, you know, just I can I can hear people in my mind saying. I just remember the first time I laughed, I, you know, I was so serious and life was so just miserable. And right. then I remember, and it's usually something, you know, from the treatment perspective that seems like kind of inconsequential on the surface. It's like playing cards in the community or watching mm -hmm. a TV show or, you know, making fun of each other, you know, you know, right. on the back porch smoking or something. Right. But there's a moment where it's kind of a different kind of boom and they get kind of yes something clicks in the neuro I don't know if the neural right. pathways are getting fixed at that point yeah. or what you know I'm not a <laughs> right no I've no, I, I agree with you I've noticed that too and and like you said oftentimes it's the most inconsequential thing and, and you're thinking as a counselor you're thinking to yourself well wait a minute what about that brilliant stuff I told you in group and they're like nah that wasn't it it was smoking out on the back porch or you know laughing with you know the other uh, my peers uh, yeah it and I don't know. I guess we could, ex I don't know how to explain it. In some ways, it's all this work that they have been doing, the very hard work they do, the very hard work the community does and the staff does, have prepared them for that moment. And uh, not that they would never get to that moment if they didn't have that, but it just, it's prepared them for that realization, that understanding. But yeah, I, I agree. I've watched that too. And it's just, you never know. And uh, or they'll hear one of the uh, twelve-step cliches, you know, that are thrown out there in meetings, and it'll make sense to them all of a sudden. And uh, it's like that's the thing they hold on to, to to maintain their sobriety. And it's like, Ab, that's great, you know, whatever it takes. And so, um, yeah, I always I always enjoy watching that moment of clarity where, you know, I had one client one time walk into uh, uh, walk into group. And he, something was different. I'm like, have you been using it? <laughs> he, he laughed. He said, no. He said, have you seen the colors outside today? And I'm like, yeah, they've been there for a long time. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he just said, wow. And that was that, was that moment. You know, it just, everything made sense all of a sudden. And and then, yeah, things really take off and accelerate after that. But, boy, sometimes getting to that point is tough. But I always look at it. Don't, don't you know, a lot of uh, counselors or staff members, a lot of times will say, boy, we're working with them, we're working with them, and it just doesn't seem to be doing any good. Well, it is. It is laying the groundwork. It, it is, uh, you know, it's setting the stage for that moment when the person all of a sudden it clicks and it makes sense for them. I think something that a lot of people don't realize that for family members, they can have a similar mm -hmm. experience. And I, oh, that yeah. and that's powerful too, that I've heard talk to so many family members doing this podcast who have moments like that. Yes. Um, yes. Whether it's the acceptance of, and this is a tough one, whether it's the acceptance of they really could not love me. And so why do I keep trying to get that? Or the acceptance of, hey, wait a minute, you know, I need to take care of myself. And, um, you know, I need to live life as well. You know, there's, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think families hit that point as well a lot of times. And that's a wonderful thing to watch, too, that they are not, because the, the disease of addiction affects everybody. Um, and um, I think the moment they begin to realize that it doesn't have to destroy my life, I still want to help my loved one, but it's been destroying my life as well. That moment is, yeah, it really is a wonderful thing. And and it seems like the residential aspect of that um, in terms of treatment for our clients is really important that they that they're here like yeah. that they are that they're not coming 
or I mean, I guess it's just one of the many ingredients that help and an essential one that help kind of create the conditions for them to have that experience. Like, I, I think so too. Yeah. I, I agree with that. You know, you're living with people who are going through the same process as you are and, um, people who uh, really do understand, um, you know, what you're going through, who aren't going to look at you funny when you say s- stuff. Um, you know, when you feel ashamed, you can talk about that. That's one of the things I absolutely love about treatment um, is in the 12-step program uh, is that you can talk about the things that you feel very ashamed about and nobody screams and jumps up and runs out of the room. Uh, people look at you and say, yeah, let me tell you what I did. And it's accepted. Once again, there's that acceptance. But we only get that when we're together in a community. Uh, we can't get that, and it, we can't. We can I guess we can get it in, like, say, an outpatient setting. But the community is very different. It just takes a longer period of time because it takes much longer for the community to form that way. But when I'm living with other people, and uh, we're we're going through uh, we're going through the groups together, and then we got to live together, uh, just really it pushes that process and makes it more, much more powerful. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, once again, I've worked in different types of settings and I honestly, uh, the residential setting has, uh, I, I, my observation is the residential setting is the most powerful and, uh, most healing setting that there is for addiction. On the subject of, of that moment coming, one of the tragic things that I've seen in this context that happens way too much, it seems like, and it's really, really tragic. I don't, I can't think of a, another word for it. It's that, that mo- something like that moment will, where it clicks, but then the thought, oh, so I must be okay now. Yeah. And I, I don't need to do this anymore. Right. I don't need to practice this, this like, I'm fixed. Yeah, right. I'm fixed. Yeah. Yeah. There's several tragic things actually that happen. Uh, that I've seen around that moment, uh, and that's one of them. That uh, that uh, yeah, oh, I'm fine now. I, I I don't need to go to meetings. I don't need to do you know keep the hard work of living uh, going. I I'm good. And we even see that. I mean, people go through detox, and they're like, oh, I feel good now. I'm I'm good to go. Um, but yeah, they, I think they're. That does happen. Another thing that is tragic that I see happen is that they that moment hits them or they're coming close to that moment and they get scared. I'm about to completely change my life. Now, and that is, I admit, that's a scary thing. And then they won't do it. You know, wait a minute, that's that's I, I don't want to do that. Maybe their family system is not healthy. And if they change, that means their family would have to change. Uh, or they just simply, it's the unknown. And let's face it, you know, we're not real good with the unknown. Um, and so they back off of that. And they go back to what's more familiar than going to a new life. And unfortunately, what's more familiar is destructive for them. And so, yeah, so I think there's a couple different tragic things that can happen around that time period. So that's, once again, though, I have to uh, reiterate that that's what's important about being in a community. If I'm willing to say that, you know, out loud, there's going to be somebody else that said, oh, yeah, yeah, I I get that. Yeah, I'm with you 100%, but you got to stick with it. You got to stick with it. As uncomfortable as it may be, you got to stick with it and uh, be willing to walk with them through that. Um, and that, that's the, I think that's the key right, right there is, is, uh, one of the things I love about Mar is that we are willing to walk with them through these times, through these very difficult times. And honestly, I was, I, well, I was talking with a staff member yesterday and they were talking about someone who left and it hurt. They, they, they were actually their feet. It wasn't that their feelings were hurt. Oh, you rejected me or this and that, but like a person who left from treatment early before finishing before they finished. Mm -hmm. And once again, it may have been that they were coming up to this moment and getting very uncomfortable. They made the decision to leave early to do the familiar pattern. 
Now they weren't, they of course assured us that they weren't going to use, which, you know, okay. Uh, and they might've believed that too. And they, oh no, I'm convinced they believe that. They were absolutely convinced I'm not going to use, but you're doing the same thing that you used to do. You know, you're making the same kind of decisions. Anyway, the staff member was in, was hurt for that person because they knew what they were looking at. And they hurt because they weren't able to help the client understand that. And the client left. Now, we I don't know what happened to the client. I mean, that's been recently. So I hope everything's okay with them. But that is one of the things I'm so impressed with about Mar and about actually most people who work in this field is that we are very invested in saving, helping that person save their life. And when they choose not to, it does hurt. It, re- it really does. Um, and it's hard to watch that happen. And I know for families, it's the same thing. It's hard to watch your loved one make decisions that we know are going to hurt them. And, um, you know, that's just, that's difficult. But I, I see staff having those same kind of feelings, having that same kind of investment in, in the client's life. So it's one of the reasons I love being at Mar. Whereas I have seen some treatment centers. It's like, ah, oh, well. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. I guess they weren't ready. Or, yeah, I guess they weren't ready and just write it off, you know, and just rationalize it somehow. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I as, when I do clinical supervision, a lot of the times I have staff members talk to me about how, how you know, the negative feelings they're having because a client has made poor decisions. Mm-hmm. And what do they do with that? And how do we get through that? How do we, you know, they, well, oh, if I would have. And once again, it's just like what the families go through. If only, or maybe if we hadn't, or maybe if we had, you know, I'm, I'm like, just feel the feelings. Don't try to figure this one out. The answer for the staff is the same as the answer for same the Same as the answer for the clients. That's yeah. exactly right. I'm sorry. These are These are bad feelings. You're right. Let's just feel them mm-hmm. and just, and actually it's a grieving process. I, I think one of the things that people miss in recovery, families and clients, is that we really need to grieve. We need to grieve over what we never had. We need to grieve over what we lost. We need to grieve over these things and, and that grieving process. And a lot of this comes from my chaplaincy work. Uh, that grieving process becomes healing over time. But boy, who wants to go through that? Oh man, uh, I don't, and I don't blame people a bit. But what I do know is that it's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, it comes out in all kinds of goofy ways, you know, anger and, and passive aggressive uh, behavior and things like that. But um, yeah, that's one of the that's one of the tough things about this field. And one of the things that uh, you know, when somebody comes up to me and says, "I want to be an addiction counselor," I say, "No, you really don't," <laughs> and that shocks people at first. But this is one of the reasons is because you're going to see and hear things that you never wanted to see and hear, but you're going to feel things because this is a tough field. This is one of the hardest fields I know. And uh, we grieve because of this, because, you know, there are these losses that we experience. There are people who make poor decisions, even though they have been presented with the way of life, so to speak, you know, recovery, and been offered this and and it, it it's tough and and we do grieve and that that's hard to do um i think i mentioned before the first time i walked into a 12-step meeting it was just the most wonderful thing and i thought to myself i thought how could anybody refuse this you know how could anybody not like this but yet we see over and over and over people being scared of that, people being scared of that acceptance, that love, that belonging that they experience there because they've never had it. A lot of them never had it in their lives, and so they're scared of it. So they go back to what's familiar. Yeah, it's kind of suspicious maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're tricking me. Yeah. yeah. You're trying to manipulate me. Where's yeah. the bait and switch? Yeah, yeah. right, exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's just not there, and that's hard to believe. You know, I get that. Um, but that's... It's sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it truly is sad. And so we, we see this uh, destruction that the uh, disease of addiction causes in our society and in individual lives and families. And it's sad. 
It just simply is. And uh, but uh, this is why it's so important to be in a community, a treatment team community, is because then we can share that sadness with people who truly understand and can support us and, and not try to change our feelings. That, that's kind of what addiction tries to do. But be with us through those feelings. And uh, it's not easy for the, for the uh, person with you to do either, is just be with someone and not try to change their feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that's what we're faced with. Mm-hmm. And it's when you said that treatment team piece of it there, it just struck me too that it's not just the, the treatment, not just the staff, it's a team with each other, but it's, it's the we're all we're all in this. Like the, yeah. Yeah, it's a, we're all part of this team, the staff and the clients and the, and, and oh, administrative staff, right? Everybody. Yeah. Everybody yeah. is part of this. Um, you know, uh, I don't care if you work directly with the client or if you work behind the scenes uh, in IT or accounting mm-hmm. or, you know, everything supports this process. And, um, it, everything is equally as important. We just have different roles. That's all. And uh, uh, but no, without without each person here at Mar, we would not be able to do what we do. Everybody is equally important. Everybody is working so hard for one thing, and that's you know uh, total and lasting recovery for the client. Mm-hmm. And we're all doing that. No matter what job we do, we're all doing that. And I think what you feel like the lack of or judgment or that I'm going to be shamed or anything here, I think it just kind of made this connection as we were talking that it's tied to that, that we're all in this, mm-hmm. you know, that that um, these things that you're telling me to do as a client, if I'm, if I'm a client, things you're telling me to do apply just as much to you, whether you're in recovery or not. Or, right. And that we're all, we're all part of this thing. And that maybe the, the consequences have been a little bit more dramatic or, or yes. intense. Um, but that really what we ask of the families to do, what we ask of the staff to do, what we ask of the clients to do, it all pretty much, it's kind of the same stuff. It yeah. seems like. We're all in the same boat together. Yeah. We just have different jobs mm-hmm. and, and different. As you said, I, I like the way you said that, that for some people, the consequences have been more severe than for others. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some people, you know, they, they uh, have to face different things than other people. But, yes, we're all doing the same process. Mm-hmm. We're all, well, should be in the same process. Mm-hmm. I Personally, I believe everybody ought to work the 12 steps. Um uh, whether they're in recovery or not, whether they have an addiction or not. Uh, Gerald May, in his book, Addiction and Grace, says that we all have addiction issues. Everyone has addiction issues. Those persons who are more, what he terms as de- more deeply addicted uh, to drugs and alcohol are the ones that we tend to focus on. But everybody has issues, um, you know, like this and that we need to work on. Um, but again, I, I think everybody ought to work the steps, you know, on different aspects of their life. Uh, very healing, very, you know, uh, very affirming. But yeah, in terms of staff at, at Mar, um, yeah, we all are working towards the same goal, which I absolutely love. And uh, we just all have different positions mm-hmm. um, to, to do that work. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to close with the question I close all of these with. Okay. What's one thing that you would pass on if you could? I think Jesus said, I came to get, that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Sometimes I get the feeling that we have no clue <laughs> you know, what that is. Um, but I do believe that it's available. And I do believe that it's out there. Uh, so to speak, or well, actually, it's not even out there. That 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 kind of implies that it's some extreme place we have to get to. But no, it's all around us all the time. Actually, that it is something that is available to us. But I kind of got a hunch that we're only going to find it together. 
that, that we're not going to do it in isolation. That's what the disease of addiction wants us to believe. But that abundant life is something that we find when we're together. And you don't have to be a Christian or no, oh no, to, not to at all. Right. Participate in that. Yeah, no, I I am, and you know, so I quote yeah. Jesus. But right. uh, you know, every every major faith, every belief system uh, is in community. Mm-hmm. No belief system is in isolation. All are in community, and um, and so recovery is best had in community. Uh, and that's where, again, that's where the abundant life is found, is within the community. And that's the genius of the 12 steps, that it mm-hmm. prioritizes the community over what name you give to it. Right. It, the, the, the genius of the 12 steps is that it puts us back in touch with ourselves, with the God of our understanding, and with other people mm-hmm. uh, in a very, just a beautiful step-by-step way. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, helps us heal our shame, helps us heal that isolation that the disease uh, pushes us into, and uh, and then the steps lead us back into uh, that place where we can find ourselves, we can find the God of our understanding, and we can find other people and find the life uh, that we were meant to have and uh, find um, that, as it says in the steps, find that spiritual awakening. Thank you so much, Jim, mm-hmm. for sitting down and doing I mean, I just enjoy talking about this stuff with you. Yeah, so thank yeah you. me too. So that's our show. Thanks for participating with us in the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd, our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>